Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, uh, the sermon this evening is the text set for Whit Sunday at Evensong for our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. It is the substance of the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's a sermon preached in response to a simple question at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the gathered disciples so that the tongues of fire were seen among them as they rose for morning prayer in the upper room where they were. And when they stood together for prayer and thanksgiving in the temple in this mighty act of God, their songs of praise were heard in the known languages of a diverse number of Jewish pilgrims who too were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost of First Fruit. Peter answers the question we read, in Acts chapter 2 verse 12. The question is this, what does this mean? Now you may recall how at the end of Luke's gospel, Peter and the disciples were told by the resurrected Lord Jesus that he would ascend to the Father to ask that the Holy Spirit be sent to them, and that when he comes, the Holy Spirit will glorify him. So what is explained here is not so much the person of the Holy Spirit, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he says of the glorious Lord Jesus. Now, I think that this is very fitting for us because you and I are the inheritors of what some theologians have called the Pentecostal century the 20th century. You see, it began in 1906 with the famous Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles that revitalized the Pentecostal church throughout North America. Now, what you may not know is how directly this Pentecostal century affected you. It was in the late 1960s. Modern Pentecostalism spread to the mainline churches, and it was called the Charismatic Movement. Clergy and laity in the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches like the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, were converted and experienced the same manifestations of the Spirit as these historically independent Pentecostal churches had, and that revival in the mainline lasted well into the late 1970s. It's this, the mainline charismatic movement, that led to the birth of Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry in 1975, now called the Trinity School for Ministry. It's out in Pittsburgh. Also, it was the birth of the Alpha Course in 1977. Perhaps you've heard of it. 
Maybe you know friends that have been converted through it. After the election of Gene Robinson, the first openly gay bishop of New Hampshire, it brought all of the wealthiest Episcopal churches transformed by the charismatic movement, like Falls Church in Virginia, St. James Newport Beach, California, into long and costly legal conflicts with the Episcopal Church that they eventually lost. This group within the Episcopal Church in North America were told to be Anglo-Catholic in liturgy, evangelical in theology, and charismatic in piety. Three things. Starting to sound familiar? Because this is where you and I enter the story. Because one Episcopal bishop who became charismatic and converted through this movement, the Bishop of Pittsburgh, Robert Duncan, founded and moderated the Anglican Communion Network. It was composed of like-minded, charismatic bishops and clergy. And it's this network that led directly to the founding of the Anglican Church of North America, our province. And we inherited what is wrongly called the three streams of Anglicanism, Anglo-Catholic, Evangelical, and Charismatic, now changed to holiness. Now I say this because if we're to examine more closely the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as it's understood by the Charismatic movement, we'd see that there's an emphasis on an experience rather than the evidence of the gospel. In other words, if I were to put it as a question to my more charismatic brothers and sisters in the Anglican Church of North America, I would not ask them, what extraordinary gifts have you experienced? But I would ask them something more. What do you make of Jesus Christ? Are you led to glorify the Lord Jesus more? Is that where your focus is? Because you see, that is key here in Peter's sermon. How he explains it to the crowd, what does this mean, is how the Holy Spirit honors and magnifies the Lord Jesus. So what we read in Peter's sermon is how he answers the question in three different ways. What does this mean? First thing he does is he answers that this Jesus fulfilled God's plan. It's in verses 22 through 23. Now I want you to notice how when we take the sermon as a whole, the way Peter demonstrates the doctrine of who Jesus is and why he came, being the center of God's plan, what does he do? He uses prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, and makes the prophets of the Old Testament witnesses, testimony of his own teaching ministry, confirmed now by this miraculous sign. Now we know that he got this teaching from the Lord Jesus himself. When he says to the disciples during the 40 days before his ascension, you heard from me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, is that John's prophecy and testimony is to be fulfilled. It's a sign of God's definite plan and foreknowledge being fulfilled. Jesus also taught in his earthly ministry that there were those who heard him who would not die, but would see the kingdom of God in power, namely the outpouring of his spirit. And in what are called his farewell discourse in John's gospel, he explained how he will send the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit will glorify him because he will take what is the Father's and his and declare it to his disciples. Jesus also taught that the Spirit will teach what the Lord Jesus has taught concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And where did our Lord Jesus get this teaching? From the Old Testament scriptures. He speaks with authority, the crowds amazed would say, all from the Old Testament. These are the hallmarks, indeed, of our Lord Jesus' own teaching ministry. We have here, you see, taken together how God's plan is coming to its fulfillment. So there's the regular and consistent indications from the Lord Jesus that what he has taught, what John the Baptist has taught, what the entire Old Testament scriptures, law, prophet, and writings has taught, are now fulfilled. That through his death and resurrection, his people receive the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter quotes the prophet Joel earlier in the sermon in verse 17 of chapter 2. The contrast he makes is between what was previously true, that the Spirit's ministry was individual and perceived by a few gathered here and there, but now it has become an event of epic proportions. All classes of people, sons, daughters, young, old, servant, master, all receive the blessing of the Spirit. It is comprehensive in its ministry, the fulfillment of what God had planned. That's the first answer. What does it mean? Jesus fulfills God's plan. Now, this Jesus inaugurates the last days in verses 24 through 31. You know, sometimes over the years, when strange events have occurred in our world today, some more superstitious have asked me when they find that I'm a priest, are we living in the last days? And I'll always say, well, yes, we are. But the last days are not just beginning because of this strange event in the news, but began with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the coming of his Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is how the Apostle Paul writes as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that all these things in the Old Testament scriptures were written down for our instruction so that we might know for certain that the end of the ages has come. So you see how it was necessary for Peter to first say, 
the Lord Jesus has fulfilled God's plan so that now we understand that the end of the age has come, the last days have come. In other words, a believer does not panic by some weird turn of history, but we are stabilized in the confirmation of the resurrection of Easter Day as the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose. Now, for some, this might be a new teaching. For others, probably an old one. But the resurrection inaugurates the last days, prophesied by Joel, quoted by Peter, and many other prophets of both Old Testament and writers of the New. It is how our Heavenly Father's Holy One, that is, the one set aside uniquely, presents gloriously the first fruits of the new creation. How fitting, then, Pentecost becomes. How this is understood, as well, is in the foreshadowing of the three anointed offices of the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, one of the great doctrines of the Church since the Reformation. You see, here, the anointing offices in which the Spirit was given to a few in special measure were what? Prophet, priest, and king. Now, in Christ Jesus, who is the full fullness of the Spirit's anointing, distributes his Spirit's anointing to all flesh. It's the fulfillment, as it were, of Psalm 133. Ever read that one? It's one of the short ones. It speaks of how God's people are gathered in unity in the Spirit. As the precious oil of anointing tumbles from Aaron, the high priest's head, on his beard and robes, scattered like dew in the morning on the mountains. God's blessing of his spirit, his anointing and promise and eternal life tumble out on to his anointed people through the Lord Jesus Christ. God in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is breaking through the old wineskins he has sustained and kept in one land and in one people. And now it breaks out to fill all the ends of the earth. The prophet Amos wrote in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, how the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. But now Christ as the prophet guarantees through the Spirit the same intimacy of access to God's secrets because access is given through the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly how the elder John wrote in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 through 27. Here's what he wrote. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, I guess I should ask an obvious question here. Does what John say here mean that the great prophetic office of the Lord Jesus Christ, this great blessing that comes to all who receive that anointing by the Spirit, makes what I'm doing right now, preaching, a waste of time? Not at all. What John intends 
is that in the light of the Old Testament witness, there are no longer prophets, that is, an Old Testament class of people. Amos indeed points that out, that he was a shepherd and farmer, not of the clan and clans of prophets. In other words, John is saying, and Peter is confirming here, that in the last days, there is no longer any hierarchy of access to God, no hierarchy of access to God. The lowest share access as much as the highest does. The prophet-like intimacy is open to every believer. All are prophets, meaning all are equal in blessing, equal in intimacy with their heavenly Father through the great prophet, the Lord Jesus. So, what does this mean? Peter has answered that this Jesus fulfilled and completed God's plan, that this Jesus inaugurated the last days, and probably centrally of all, that this Jesus is the exalted Lord and Christ. And we see this in verses 32 through 36. Now, here's where it gets fascinating. Now, whenever I say that, you know what that means. We're going to have a little dig down into the exegesis here, you know. So let me put it like this. When do you think the New Testament scriptures point to underline the birthday of the Lord Jesus? I'll give you a minute on that one. What do you think? Where does it go when it wants to emphasize the birthday of the Lord Jesus? Ah, yes, it's a trick question. Ah, yes, that's right. You know me too well. Well, it's not the incarnation and the nativity. That's right. But it is the resurrection and the ascension. Here's one example from Acts chapter 13, verse 33. You can check it for homework. Paul's sermon in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch in what is now Western Turkey. This is what he says to the Jews assembled there. But God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So hang on to that. Here it is again in the fifth verse of Hebrews chapter 1. You may remember it from our study of the Sermon of the Hebrews. After making purification for sins, that would be the crucifixion, death, etc., and then resurrection, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and here we are in Psalm 2 again, you are my son, today I have begotten you? You see, here it is. This is Jesus' birthday. The Holy Spirit is poured out because of what? His coronation, his triumphant, ascended, glorious coronation. 
You know, when you look closely at Peter's sermon, we can start to see a chronology. Verse 32, God raised him up. Verse 34, he, this Jesus, ascended. But notice also verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Exalted is the climax, isn't it? And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Exalted, the Lord Jesus receives the Holy Spirit from the Father who is poured out upon the believers. This is the direct link to the teaching of the Lord Jesus in that farewell discourse in the upper room that Peter had heard and was a participant. In John 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Ascension, session at the Father's right hand, exaltation, outpouring of the anointing of the Spirit, the promise and plan fulfilled. You see, this day, Whit Sunday, is a public celebration of the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the Netflix series, The Crown. It's gone on a bit now, and I've got less and less interested in it, I must confess, as the events got closer at me. They overlapped my time when I lived in England. But I found the first series the best, which chronicled the transition from a young Princess Elizabeth, her early marriage, and her coronation as Queen Elizabeth II. It was there. And you know, it's no coincidence that we caught glimpses in an earthly monarch of what the scriptures repeat here. Because, you know, there's an order to a British coronation. And what you find there is anointing. Then the investiture, which includes the crowning. Then enthronement. And then the homage of those assembled. At the investiture and crowning, what happens? The sovereign is given a scepter to symbolize her authority under God, and an orb symbolizing the extent of her earthly realm. The monarch is dressed in a deacon-like robe to symbolize their office as servant of God, and likewise are anointed. Once seated, enthroned, crowned, the assembled earthly princes of the realm come forward and pledge their loyalty to their new queen. Their small crown and coronet are removed from their head as they kneel and give their oath. The sovereign is crowned once, but the fact of the coronation endures for the rest of their earthly reign. And when they are laid to rest, entombed in Westminster Abbey, the great seal of their reign is broken, and the staff of their authority is broken, 
and tossed into the tomb with them. The glory of a heavenly coronation, however, is eternal, but it began on one particular day, today, with Sunday, and reverberates beyond time, through eternity, with the result that every creature and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. So what is the result of this sermon? It's in verses 37 through 38. And now we hear that extra ministry of the Holy Spirit, the one that draws us into the kingdom of God. The result is that people are converted. The Lord Jesus promised his disciples not to leave them as orphans, but he will be with them through the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised and it's now fulfilled in the conviction of the hearts of these people. As he said in John 16, verses 8 through 11, I've already talked about this. I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice how the direction of grace and the ministry of the Spirit is to repent and believe. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit is how he points to Jesus Christ in such a way that sinners are stopped dead in their tracks and flattened under the burden of their sinfulness, now made aware to them perhaps for the first time before a holy God. These people are not joyful, are they? But they're cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and believe. You know, one pastor described the day of Pentecost, which Sunday, like a village that for the first time gains a reliable, fresh water supply. When the day to open the pumping station for the first time comes, it's a great day of celebration. The mayor, and dignitaries gather round. There's a party. Speeches are made. Bands play. And the valve is opened for the first time and the fresh water tumbles through the causeway into the center of the village and to the pump where the population can gather a supply of ready, pure water. Individuals may drink deeply or a household may come, or a street may ask for a link to that water supply. And so individuals come to drink deeply of Christ in the Holy Spirit, in our conversion. Or a community may drink deep, what we'd say is a revival, as the Holy Spirit comes afresh, convicting them of their sin, and making them reaffirm their faith and commitment to Christ, and the church is revived and becomes a church energized for mission. This is the great longing of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? That he be proclaimed throughout the world, the anointing to spread everywhere, comprehensively, that we might see him with fresh eyes, 
that we might see our sin with real clarity, that we might be bound in a fellowship of the local church with ever greater fruitfulness. Are you thirsty? Come to drink. Come to drink the living water. Isn't that how the Bible actually ends in that great consoling fact? For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This, my dear friends, is the grace of Pentecost. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.